0: on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life.
1: Lectures on the Politics of God and the Politics of Man Lecture 14 The Antithesis The Gospel, we are told in Scripture, is a mystery to non-believers. This does not mean that non-believers cannot understand intellectually the propositions in terms of which the Gospel is predicated. Nor is it that non-believers do not have access to the Gospel, that they have not heard it. In most Western societies, the majority of people will have heard the Gospel preached or explained in some form. The Gospel is not a mystery in the Gnostic sense, that is to say, a doctrine revealed only to the initiated few, and kept secret from those who are not initiated into the sect. The gospel is not a mystery in the sense that nobody, or very few people, know what it teaches. Christians do not come along to non-believers and say, I cannot reveal the mysteries of the gospel to you until you have agreed to join our sect and have gone through the initiation ceremonies, which was the process by which the Gnostic sects and mystery cults in the ancient world propagated their teachings and gained new converts. Rather, The gospel is a revealed mystery that is preached to all men everywhere. The non-believers who criticise Christianity are not seeking to expose some esoteric doctrine that has been kept secret by the church. The doctrines of the Christian faith are preached throughout the world, and with the exception of people living in a few closed Muslim countries and communist states, those who want to know or examine what the Bible and the church teach about the faith have no difficulty in getting access to it. It is public knowledge that the Christian faith teaches that God created the world, that mankind fell into sin, and that the second person of the Trinity became incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who lived, died and rose again for the redemption of the world. The gospel is not a mystery in the sense that non-believers cannot understand the gospel propositionally, that is to say, understand formally or intellectually what it teaches. They can. The gospel is a mystery to them in the sense that they do not accept it as the truth and believe it because it is foolishness to them. This is what Paul says in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Quote, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 1.18 And again in chapter 2 he says, And again I quote, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. The non-believer does not understand the gospel in the sense that his mind has not been opened by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, although he can understand intellectually the meaning of the propositions in terms of which the gospel is explained, he does not accept it does not submit to it as God's word, and acknowledge it as the truth. The non-believer's whole life is built on the denial of what the Gospel teaches, and therefore it is foolishness to him, a contradiction of what he believes gives meaning to his life. Anything that contradicts what a person believes gives meaning to life, to his understanding of reality, will appear as foolishness to him, because it contradicts his whole worldview, Which is the basis of his understanding of all things. Before the non-believer will accept the truth of the Gospel and acknowledge Christ as his Saviour, the whole basis of his life, of his understanding of the meaning and purpose of life, must be turned upside down. Therefore, the Gospel is a mystery to him in the sense that it does not make sense in terms of his own understanding of life, his own world view. It is foolishness to him. His mind is veiled by sin, He cannot see the gospel as the wisdom of God, because sin blinds him to its truth. Therefore it is a mystery to him, until his mind is enlightened, renewed by the Holy Spirit. See Romans chapter 12 verse 2. But to those who believe, the gospel is wisdom, the wisdom of God. It is the only rational and meaningful explanation of the whole of reality, the only rational and meaningful explanation of the human condition, and the only hope for mankind. Here, therefore, we have an antithesis, a complete contrast or polarization between two different worldviews, two different approaches to the whole of life. On the one hand, there is the non-believer who can understand the gospel propositionally, but who rejects it as foolishness and refuses to submit to its teachings because for him it does not make sense of or give meaning to his life. On the other hand, we have the Christian who says that the gospel is the only thing that makes sense of reality. The only thing that gives meaning and purpose to life. Only by believing that the gospel is true, can the Christian make sense of the world and his own life. The non-believer makes sense of the world and of his own life by denying the gospel and seeking the meaning of life in something else, which of course is what idolatry is. The nature of the antithesis that exists in principle between the believer and the non-believer, therefore, is absolute. The principles of understanding and wisdom espoused by the world are the polar opposites of the principles of understanding and wisdom upon which the Christian faith is based. It is not just that the believer and the non-believer disagree about a few things, such as whether Jesus was an historical character, whether he is actually the Son of God, or whether the resurrection was a historical event. The antithesis between belief and unbelief is much deeper than this. It is an antithesis that exists at a much more profound level. If the believer and the non-believer were to be absolutely consistent with their beliefs, there would be nothing upon which they could agree. Abraham Kuyper made this point clearly in his lecture on Calvinism and science, in his lectures on Calvinism, and I quote, Not faith and science, therefore, but two scientific systems, or if you choose two scientific elaborations, are opposed to each other, each having its own faith. Nor may it be said that it is here science which opposes theology. For we have to do with two absolute forms of science, both of which claim the whole domain of human knowledge, and both of which have a suggestion about the supreme being of their own as the point of departure for their world view. These two systems are not relative opponents walking together halfway and further on, peaceably suffering one another to choose different paths but they are both in earnest, disputing with one another the whole domain of life, and they cannot desist from the constant endeavor to pull down to the ground the entire edifice of their respective controverted assertions, all the supports included, upon which their assertions rest. If they did not try this, they would thereby show on both sides that they did not honestly believe in their point of departure, that they were no serious combatants and that they did not understand the primordial demand of science, which of course claims unity of conception, There is an antithesis, a complete divide, a total contrast or opposition between Christianity and non-belief in principle at all levels and in all things, starting with the very foundations of our understanding of all things. For example, if it is asserted that there is no God, and that the universe is merely the product of evolution, we could not, if we were to be totally consistent with this idea, say anything intelligible about anything in the universe. Nothing in such a universe would make sense because there is nothing there to give it any sense. Everything would be the product of a blind evolutionary process that is without purpose and meaning. In other words, everything would be a mere chance occurrence, and there are no meaningful connections between events or things that are the product of chance. Meaning and purpose do not play any role in such a universe. Random evolutionary occurrences have no real meaning. The ideas of purpose and meaning are foreign to the evolutionary cosmos. If the evolutionary atheist were to be completely consistent with his beliefs about the origin and nature of the universe, he would have to admit that life has no ultimate or inherent meaning and purpose. Reality is unordered and random. The only order and meaning there is in such a universe, therefore, is what man himself imposes upon reality by his own mental efforts, that is to say, his own ideas. And in such a universe, there is no necessity that or reason why the personal ideas of individual men should have any meaningful relationship to each other or to the world outside their own minds. Accordingly, Arthur Schopenhauer declared that, and I quote, the world is my idea, unquote. The problem is that people are not totally consistent with their principles. The atheist cannot think and live in a way that is ultimately consistent with the principles of atheism and evolution. To do so would be to deny all meaning and purpose to his own life. And man always seeks for meaning and purpose in life. Just because a man denies that life finds its meaning and purpose in terms of the creative act of the God of Scripture, does not mean that he no longer seeks to understand the meaning of life and no longer seeks purpose to his existence. He still seeks these things, but he seeks them in some aspect of the created order itself. That is to say, he puts something else in the place of God as an ultimate explanation of life. The Bible calls this idolatry. Belief in evolution, therefore, is a form of idolatry. But in order to commit this idolatry, the evolutionist has to posit the ideas of intelligibility, meaning and purpose. Such ideas are inconsistent with the idea of evolution, but man cannot live without seeking for purpose and meaning, without trying to make sense of his life and the world around him. The atheistic evolutionist, therefore, is inconsistent with his own beliefs about evolution. Evolutionists who use words and concepts like meaning, purpose and reason are being inconsistent with their evolutionary principles. And it is interesting to note just how often evolutionists do use words like purpose, meaning, and reason. Indeed, the words belief and believe are also very common in the vocabulary of evolutionary science. The use of such words and concepts, however, reveals not only the schizophrenic nature of the evolutionary position, it reveals also the religious nature of the evolutionary worldview but the evolutionist never thinks and acts consistently in terms of his belief in the process of evolution. Why? The evolutionist is made in God's image, just as the Christian is. He is made to function in the world that God made, a world that is rational and meaningful, a world that makes sense to man because he has been put here with the purpose of understanding and developing it. Man has a purpose, And that purpose is explained in the Bible in what Christians call the cultural mandate. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Man's denial of God does not render that purpose null and void. Rather, it corrupts the way in which man goes about fulfilling it. But in order to fulfill it, man must assume a world of rationality, meaning, order and purpose in some form. No matter how corrupt these ideas become due to man's sin and rejection of God. Therefore, men find it impossible to be totally consistent with their denial of God. This is why we say that there is, in principle, a complete and absolute antithesis between belief and non-belief. The operative words are, in principle. Men find it well-nigh impossible to be totally consistent with their atheism. They deny the God who made the world, but they want to keep hold of the world he made. They want a world of logic, order, rationality, meaning and purpose, but not the God whose creative act gave the world all these things, and in terms of which alone such concepts have validity. But if there is no God, and everything exists as a result of blind evolutionary processes, chance, then nothing has any meaning and we cannot say anything intelligible about anything in the universe. As we have already seen, atheists cannot live consistently in terms of such a philosophy. So they smuggle the world God made back into their worldview, dressed up as something else. They presuppose the concepts of order, meaning and rationality, but insist that these things come from some aspect of the cosmos itself, not from the creative will of God, who is not part of the cosmos. In other words, they make some aspect of the created order, some idea, person or thing, the ultimate principle of explanation for life. This principle of explanation takes the place of God in their system of belief and they attribute to it all that belongs by right to God, that is to say the attributes of God. This is what idolatry is, whether it exists in a highly cultic form as with ancient idolatry or in a secularized form as with modern intellectual idols such as evolution and socialism. The non-believer, therefore, lives intellectually and spiritually on borrowed capital that he puts to bad use. This is the wisdom of the world. It is idolatry and it comes in the end to nothing, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Even the good things of this world, including the very ideas of rationality, meaning, order and purpose, are perverted by the non-believer and put to the service of idols. Why? Because in principle, at the very foundation of the non-believer's worldview, his understanding is corrupted by sin, by the rejection of God's word as the definitive and authoritative interpretation of reality. In principle, there is an absolute dichotomy, an absolute antithesis between the whole world of faith in Christ and the whole world of non-belief. But as we have seen, Men do not think and live in a way that is entirely consistent with their stated beliefs and principles. Yet even those things that they accept as valid and meaningful are put to use in the service of idols. So the evolutionist uses his reason, a God-given ability, to deny God. He uses the concepts of order and purpose to deny that the universe has order and purpose. Because a universe of order and purpose points to God, And by denying that the universe has order and purpose, he denies the God who created it. He perverts even the good things that he inconsistently borrows from the world God created to deny that God created it and to deny God's rights. You will find, therefore, as you argue with the non-believer about his views and about the Christian faith, that it is difficult to get him to be consistent with his atheistic and evolutionary principles. The non-believer will advance one argument against the Christian faith, and then when challenged about the validity of this argument, he will jump off onto some other argument that is based on presuppositions and and preconceptions that are fundamentally inconsistent with, and therefore that ultimately contradict the first argument. This is because the whole understanding of the non-believer is radically split between what he says are the principles in which he believes, and the fact that he cannot consistently think, argue, and ultimately live, in terms of those principles. The non-believer wants a world of order, rationality, purpose and meaning, but he does not want the God whose creative will is necessary for the existence of such a world. He uses the good things of God's creation to deny that God created it. Cornelius Van Til said that this is like a child who has to sit on his father's lap in order to slap him in the face. Interestingly, this principle of non-belief does sometimes work itself out more consistently in art. Hans Rookmaker said as much when he pointed out that, and I quote, the spirit of anti-Christianity, of dehumanisation, of despair, is strongest in the avant-garde tradition of the arts, unquote. In the world of art, we often see more clearly where atheism leads, the kind of ultimate conclusions that are involved in the denial of God. The denial of God ultimately implies the denial of all meaning. And whereas in everyday life, men find it difficult to live in terms of this principle, in art, sometimes this principle is worked out more consistently, though usually unselfconsciously. If one looks at much of modern art, there is a bewildering meaninglessness to it. This can be seen in the visual arts where paintings seem to have no logic. One part of the painting might have absolutely no relation to another part. Indeed, the whole painting might seem utterly meaningless, a conglomeration of colours and shapes that appear to have no purpose. The world represented by such art is radically shattered, broken, disjointed, dysfunctional, meaningless. The various parts of the picture may seem to have no meaningful relationship to each other in the way that items on a rubbish tip have no meaningful relationship to each other. And indeed, the casual lay observer may well describe such pictures as rubbish, a description that is often not unreasonable given the lack of meaningful integration in the overall scheme of the work. Because it is precisely the lack of meaningful relationships between individual things that defines a rubbish tip. It is often said that such art is not meant to be representational and therefore that such criticism is not valid. But I doubt this is a valid argument. Such art is not representational in the sense that we normally use the term representational in reference to the visual arts. But in another sense, such art is representational. Only what it represents is the utter meaninglessness and randomness of a world without God, a world without order, reason, meaning or purpose. The same is true of much modern atonal music. The sounds produced by the musical instruments do not have any meaningful relationship to each other. They represent a random, unordered and meaningless universe, a universe without God who alone gives order and meaning to the universe by his creative will the serialism of arnold Schoenberg, although similarly atonal in effect does not exactly fit this description in terms of theoretical intention nevertheless Schoenberg stated that and i quote once we are cured of the delusion that the artist's aim is to create beauty and once we have recognised that only the necessity to produce compels him to bring forth what will perhaps afterwards be designated as beauty, then we will also understand that comprehensibility and clarity are not the conditions that the artist is obliged to impose on his work, but conditions that the observer wishes to find fulfilled. Order, clarity, are there by chance, not by law, not by necessity. And what we claim to perceive as laws, defining order and clarity, may perhaps only be laws governing our perception, without therefore being the laws a work of art must obey." Although he rejected the term atonal as a description of his own serial music, Schoenberg abandoned the tonalism of the Western musical tradition and invented a completely new set of rules to govern the composition of a completely new type of music. His intention seems to have been to do away with the musical world that he had inherited and to recreate the musical world in his own image by means of this new music. In his serial music, Schoenberg effectively proclaimed himself the God and creator of his own musical world. Serialism is, after Schopenhauer, the new musical world that is Schoenberg's idea. As with all other forms of idolatry, the result is not merely spiritual corruption, but also cultural ugliness. Although this adoption of meaninglessness, or, as with Schoenberg, the rejection of order and comprehensibility, which to all intents and purposes amounts to the same thing, as a means of artistic expression may often be perhaps usually is unself-conscious it is nevertheless a significant component of many modern artists world view but sometimes it is self-conscious and deliberate and expressed openly as an ideological principle as is clear from the words of schoenberg just quoted likewise the atonal composer pierre boulez stated in a talk in the 1960s that Quote, a composer should never move by step, melodically, for more than two notes, because if you do, the ear will connect them and make meaning out of them. Unquote. Compare this with Schoenberg's statement that, and again I quote, to double is to emphasize, and an emphasized note could be interpreted as a root or even a tonic. The consequence of such an interpretation must be avoided even a slight reminiscence of the former tonal harmony would be disturbing because it would create false expectations of consequence and continuation by contrast leonard bernstein addressed this issue more perceptively when he said that and again i quote one cannot abstract musical tones on the contrary they have to be given their reality through form up and down short and long loud and soft, and so to the inescapable conclusion, all forms that we have ever known have always been conceived in tonality, that is, in the sense of a tonal magnetic centre with subsidiary tonal relationships. This sense, I believe, is built into the human organism. We cannot hear two isolated tones, even devoid of any context, without immediately imputing a tonal meaning to them. We may differ from one another in the tonal meaning we infer, but we infer it nonetheless. We are stuck with this, and always will be. And the moment a composer tries to abstract musical tones by denying them their tonal implications, he has left the world of communication. In fact, it is all but impossible to do, although heaven knows how hard composers have been trying for 50 years. As witnessed the increasingly desperate means being resorted to. Chance music, electronic sounds, noteless instructions, the manipulation of noise, what not, unquote. But there is something more to this pursuit of atonality than an ideological commitment to meaninglessness as an artistic principle, something of greater significance for our understanding of man's spiritual condition. In his television series, Leaving Home, orchestral music in the 20th century, the conductor Simon Rattle spoke about the development of this modern music in the 20th century. He said that Richard Strauss, one of the most progressive composers of his time when he was young, walked up to and looked over the precipice of this new development in music when he wrote his opera, Electra, 1909, an opera that seemed to foreshadow these developments in atonality, but shrank back from the precipice and returned to traditional tonal music in his opera Der Rosenkavellier, 1911. Quote, Strauss, in his brilliant, instinctive way, said Rattle, had blazed a path for a whole new school of music, almost without thinking he'd shown how far music could go if it went away from its home of tonality. Electra must have seemed very radical at the time, and maybe it was obvious to Strauss what a frightening and lonely place this outer space of free tonality was. He was never again to return to it, and it was left to Arnold Schoenberg, the reluctant revolutionary, to go even further, to be even more radical, but also to give some sense of order and foundation to this strange new world. Unquote. The book based on the television series makes the same claim, and again I quote, Strauss was one of the first to make use of bitonality, but he was too committed to romanticism to make any further contribution to the development of the ideas unfolding during the radical years before the First World War. The next opera he and Hofmannsthal produced, Der Rosenkavalier, turned away from the problems raised in electra and found refuge again in the past Unquote. but this is to miss the point of electra altogether strauss's musical language was always tonal one of his greatest talents as a composer was his ability to depict the world around him musically he was able to conjure up a musical impression of just about anything from a teaspoon to a thunderstorm what he depicted in electra was a woman who is deranged, insane. The atonal music of Electra, therefore, is the music of insanity. This was entirely consistent with Strauss's musical genius. What rattle missed, and it seems to me this can only be explained by the dominating atheistic worldview of the age, is that the modern music of atonality is the music of insanity, just as the paintings and sculptures of modern art so often exhibit the same spirit of insanity, the insanity of a world where nothing has any meaningful relationship to anything else and everything happens randomly. This point was understood intuitively by artists and composers of previous generations. Charles Villiers Stanford said that, and I quote, The palette of a painter is a beautiful study of colour, both simple and complex. But he would not exhibit it as a picture unless he was qualifying for bedlam," Later on in the programme, Rattle seems to glimpse this vaguely when he says, and again I quote, "'The logic of complete freedom leads to the madhouse," unquote. But he then argues that Schoenberg's serialism saved music from this fate. He goes on to describe serialism as a kind of musical democracy of tones. In his book, based on the television series, michael hall also seems almost to recognize this point when he describes electra as and i quote afflicted with the classic symptoms of hysteria unquote and goes on to say that electra quote is undoubtedly strauss's most radical and dissonant work and as in schoenberg's quartet there are passages that are virtually atonal the most extreme occur in the scene between Electra and Clytemnestra, notably when Clytemnestra tells her daughter about the monsters that haunt her dreams. The episode concludes with a tonal cadence, but before this, the discords are as harsh and the harmony as rootless as the images Clytemnestra conjures up." This is the godless and insane world of meaninglessness on which the theory of evolution is based it is no accident that the modern age of godless secularism has been supremely the age of mental illness compared with other periods of western history such art and music demonstrate more consistently the principle of the antithesis the gulf that exists between the godless and meaningless worldview of atheism and the ordered rational and meaningful worldview of the christian faith than do philosophy and science Because in these latter disciplines, men find it so much more difficult to abandon the concepts of reason, meaning, order and purpose. Of course, it is certainly not the case that all non-believers listen to the music of Pia Boulez, Harrison Birtwistle et al., while Christians listen to Bach and Richard Strauss. The non-believer finds it virtually impossible to live consistently in terms of his principle of non-belief. The wisdom of the world is the polar opposite of the wisdom of God. Therefore, the two belief systems produce completely different worldviews, different cultures, different art, different political philosophies, different educational goals, different social aspirations, different societies, different social orders. We should not let the fact that in the West we are currently living in a period of transition from one culture to another deceive us. In a period of transition, it is easy to think that these two worldviews are not totally incompatible because the long-established practice of the Christian faith leaves an intellectual and cultural legacy that takes time to disappear and the non-believer makes use of the residue of Christian intellectual and cultural capital while it is available. But this capital will not be available indefinitely and the Christian heritage will disappear eventually unless there is a resurgence of Christian faith in society, and unless the Church, under the influence of such a resurgent faith, engages culturally and politically with the nation. That is to say, unless there is a commitment to converting the nation to the Christian faith, not merely soul-winning, which is sadly what characterised the Church's understanding of the Great Commission during the second half of the 20th century. The philosophy of the non-believing world is a never-ending quest for truth because it has denied at the outset the foundation upon which the truth rests. The wisdom of this world dooms its practitioners and followers to an endless frustration with false truth, that is to say idolatry. In the end, the wisdom of the world produces death. False gods always fail their devotees. For the Christian, however, things are very different. The Christian does not know everything, nor is his understanding perfect in every respect. He makes mistakes in his thinking and in his understanding. Often he is, like the non-believer, inconsistent with his first principles. He lacks knowledge, especially knowledge of details. No man is omniscient. Nevertheless, in principle, the Christian has a foundation for his understanding that makes complete sense of the whole of reality. For the Christian, the world makes ultimate sense and is imbued with meaning. He has already found the truth and has acknowledged it and submitted his mind to it, so that his whole philosophy of life is in principle based on the truth. The words mind and submitted are important here. The Christian is one whose mind is submitted to God and therefore to the truth in principle. He is one whose mind has been renewed by the holy spirit see romans chapter 12 verse 2 ephesians 4 verses 22 to 23 and compare matthew 22 verse 37 philippians 4 verse 7 2 timothy 1 verse 17 hebrews 8 verse 10 1 peter one, seventeen; and 2 peter 3 verse 1 the christian has the mind of christ 1 corinthians 2:16 In other words, his mind is conformed to the truth. It is important that we recognise the importance of the mind in the Christian life. Scripture does not tell us that the Christian is one whose emotions or feelings have been renewed by the Holy Spirit, but rather one whose mind has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is described as having the mind of Christ. According to Scripture, the Holy Spirit works through the renewing of the mind Of course, this does not mean that the emotions are excluded from the life of faith. According to the biblical view of man, the heart and the mind form a unity. Heart and mind should not be abstracted from each other. The heart, biblically speaking, includes the intellectual function as well as the emotional. According to R.C. Denton, and I quote, The Bible is the product of the Hebraic mind which has no real interest in psychological analysis and no conception of the division of the human personality into separate organs or faculties, each governing some particular phase of man's psychic activity. Feeling, thinking, planning and willing were all conceived to be functions of the entire personality so that the conception of the mind as the special seat or organ of reflective thinking, as distinguished, for example, from the heart, as the seat of the emotions, would have been for the Hebrews almost unintelligible. Unquote. In the Old Testament, thought, reasoning, understanding, will, judgment, design, affection, love, hatred, courage, fear, joy and sorrow are all ascribed to the heart. Scripture, says Franz Dielich, and I quote, without excluding head and brain from the psycho-spiritual activities and affections, attributes the central agency of these to the heart." Indeed, if anything, the Hebrew terms for heart have a stronger connotation with intellectual and volitional activity than with emotional states, which have a stronger connotation with the term soul, nefesh. According to H. Wheeler Robinson, The Hebrew words for heart, leb and libab, occur 851 times in the Old Testament. Of these, 257 refer to the personality or inner life generally. 204 refer to intellectual activity, such as attention, reflection, memory, understanding and technical skills. 195 refer to volition or purpose, which is one of the most characteristic usages. Only 166 of the 851 refer to emotional states of consciousness, including intoxication, joy, sorrow, courage, and fear. And in 29 cases, there is a physical or figurative, for example, midst, reference. It seems clear from this that the Old Testament uses the word heart in a way that is quite different from the modern English usage. It does not refer to the feelings or emotions as opposed to the intellect or head, but rather to the whole of man's thought life, including his intellect or understanding and volition, though with a greater emphasis on these latter. The Greek word for heart, kardia, was used in the Septuagint mainly to translate the Hebrew words leb and libab, and in the New Testament with broadly the same meaning. In the New Testament, however, the Greek words nous mind, understanding, reason, and dianoia, mind, understanding, take over some of the specific connotation of intellect and understanding denoted by the Hebrew terms leb and lebab. Compare Romans chapter 12 verse 2 and 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16. Accordingly, the Old Testament injunction to, and I quote, Love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, lebab, and with all thy soul, nefesh, and with all thy might, unquote. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. Becomes in the New Testament, quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, kardia, and with all thy soul, suke, literally breath, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, dianoia. unquote. Luke chapter 10 verse 27, compare Matthew chapter 22 verse verse 37 and Matthew chapter 12 verses 30 and 33. Biblical religion, therefore, is not a religion of the heart in the modern sense of the term. It is a religion of the whole man. Nothing of what it means to be human is excluded from the life of faith. In the biblical perspective, man is a unity. According to Wheeler Robinson, and I quote, the Hebrew idea of personality is that of an animated body, not like the Greeks, that of an incarnated soul, unquote. There is therefore a good deal of overlap in the meaning of the Hebrew terms for heart and soul. Nonetheless, and again, I quote Wheeler Robinson, the unity of personality as conceived by the Hebrew found its emotional expression chiefly under the name of Nefesh, the soul, literally breath, whilst intellectual and volitional activity centred in the heart as its organ. It is the mind that is renewed by the Holy Spirit. Our service of worship therefore should be rational, as Paul makes clear when he writes I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 2. The word translated here as reasonable, logikos, is a word from which we derive our English words logic and logical john murray makes the following interesting comments on this verse and i quote the service here in view is worshipful service and the apostle characterizes it as rational because it is worship that derives its character as acceptable to god from the fact that it enlists our mind our reason our intellect it is rational in contrast with what is mechanical and automatic A great many of our bodily functions do not enlist volition on our part. But the worshipful service here enjoined must constrain intelligent volition. The lesson to be derived from the term rational is that we are not spiritual in the biblical sense, except as the use of our bodies is characterized by conscious, intelligent, consecrated devotion to the service of God. Our lives are to be a rational sacrifice of service to God. However, it is important that we do not misunderstand what is being said here. The Christian understands the wisdom of God not because he has made a rational inquiry into the evidence and has come to a balanced judgment about the veracity of the gospel. He does not believe because he has subjected the claims of the gospel to be the truth to his own autonomous judgment. Often, that is how the gospel is presented. If only men would consider the evidence impartially and rationally, they would have to accept the gospel as true. But this is not how the gospel is presented in Scripture. Rather, understanding is the fruit of faith, not the ground of faith. St. Augustine stated the matter in the following way, and I quote, "'If thou hast not understood,' said I, "'believe.' For understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that thou mayest understand. We believe in order that we might understand. Men will never understand the gospel, the truth, until they submit their minds to God. It is belief that drives understanding, not understanding that drives belief. This is the case for the non-believer as well. The atheist starts from a position of belief, a faith commitment, namely, the belief that there is no God and that the universe exists and can be understood and explained completely in terms of itself without reference to God or his creative will. This is a universal negative religious presupposition that underpins and drives the atheist's worldview, that is to say, his understanding of all things. This belief directs his reasoning about the origin, nature, meaning, value and purpose of life. In his understanding, the atheist starts with disbelief, or rather with a belief that God does not exist, and his reasoning endorses his disbelief. As a result, he uses his intellectual powers, his reason, to deny the veracity of the gospel. His belief that there is no God and that the universe explains itself drives and guides his understanding. The only way for this cycle of disbelief to be broken is by means of the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in the mind of the non-believer. The Bible teaches this truth, that is to say that faith drives understanding in the most categorical terms. Quote, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Unquote. Hebrews Chapter 11, verse 3, compare Psalm 111, verse 10, Proverbs 1, 7, and Proverbs 9, 10. We do not understand that the universe was created by God because the evidence points to this. That is to say, because the facts speak for themselves. We understand that God created all things from nothing because we believe. And it is in terms of the worldview generated by this faith that we then go on to interpret the evidence. The same is true for the atheist. The atheist does not deny the existence of God because the evidence points to this conclusion. He starts with a faith position, a belief that there is no God and that the universe can be explained merely in terms of itself. And it is in terms of the worldview generated by this faith commitment that he then goes on to interpret the evidence. Faith always drives understanding. Understanding does not drive faith. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Unquote. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. The antithesis is absolute and complete. We believe that we might understand, and it is faith that enables us to judge all things rightly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. That is to say, that enables us to understand the truth. The believer, by faith, is liberated in principle, from the false judgments of the world, he is no longer a slave to the faulty judgments of the wisdom of this world, that is to say, the idolatry of the world. Therefore, he must not subject himself to the idolatrous wisdom of the world. He is not to be under the controlling influence of the world's philosophy. This is why it is so tragic to see believers prostrating themselves before and prostituting themselves with the idols of the world, for example, submitting to the false reasoning of doctrines such as evolution and socialism. These are the idols of a false religion. And what do Christians who put themselves into the service of these idols gain? A little of the world's intellectual respectability? Perhaps. It is even more tragic to see Christians sending their children to be educated in the schools of such an idolatrous religion. Christians who believe and do such things are denying their Lord, even though they may not be fully aware of what they are doing. We must maintain the antithesis. It is the principle as foundation that is so important. If you wait until you understand before you believe, you will never believe, and you will never understand the Gospel. If you believe, submit your mind to God's word, you will understand because belief drives understanding. Belief, therefore, determines culture, the whole way we understand and live our lives as individuals and as a society. The Christian is not to be under the controlling influence of the world's philosophy of life. Again, I stress the antithesis. The principle on which the believer is to base his thought, Work and life is the antithesis of that upon which the non-believer bases his thought, work, and life. These two antithetical worldviews must produce therefore radically different cultures and If the church does not produce a culture that is different from that of the world but instead one that merely follows the cultural developments of the world, something is seriously wrong. The Christian culture. Cannot compromise itself with the non Christian culture, but must be forever at war with it, seeking, as Abraham Kuyper said, to pull down to the ground its whole edifice, including all its supports. If Christians do not seek to do this, they only show by their compromise that they do not honestly believe in their point of departure, and that they are not serious combatants in the spiritual warfare to which God calls His church. The task to which the Christian is called is one that can only end in complete victory, in the total overthrow of the kingdoms of this world and the subjection of the nations to the discipline of Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to in the Great Commission. There will be no parousia until this happens, because, as the Bible clearly states, on that day it will be declared in heaven that, and I quote, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign for ever and ever. Revelation chapter eleven verse fifteen. End of lecture fourteen. These lectures are produced by the Kuiper Foundation, a charitable trust in England. Registration number three two seven five three seven, supported financially by means of voluntary donations. From those who believe in the cause for which it works. The Kuiper Foundation is not a business and it makes all its literature, films and lectures available free of charge on its website as PDF files, audio files and QuickTime movies. Nonetheless, in order to produce the literature and audio files we make available and in order to progress the work of the Foundation further, we need financial support from those who believe in the cause for which we are working. If you have found these lectures to be useful and believe in the cause that the Kuiper Foundation exists to promote, please consider supporting the Kuiper Foundation financially. You can make donations on our website at the following address www.kuiper.org forward donations. More information about the work of the Kuiper Foundation can be found on our website at www.kuiper.org Under the About Us page.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website. Send us an email and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and his kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth.